Housewife Peeps Creek, where every other hump Wednesday we bring you stories about crime, love, triumph, and adversity. I'm your host and author, Versailles Hart. We call our episodes shorts, short for short story, and all the shorts you will hear on this podcast fictional. That is, the names, characters, places, and events are the pure product of the author's imagination. Any resemblance to an actual person, dead or alive, or actual events are purely coincidental. The short you're about to hear discusses crime, murder, and contains adult language that may be sensitive to some. Listener discretion is advised. Now let's continue with the short, entitled The Argument. Previously, in Chapter 3, you met Jesus Madrid, the head of Albuquerque's Office of the Medical Investigator, a.k.a. The Coroner. Even though Coroner Madrid was unable to provide Detective Garcia with preliminary details concerning the deaths of the Romero family, he committed to working through the night to get Detective Garcia more details pertaining to the when, how, and possibly why the Romero family died. Has he met the request? You are now entering into Chapter 4 of the argument entitled, The Arrest. Detective Garcia's outlook pinged around 2.30 p.m. the next day. The sender line of the incoming mail said, Madrid, Jesus. The subject line of the email said, Preliminary Autopsy Diagnosis. Detective Garcia's heart skipped a beat. Even though he knew that this was a report that he actually needed, he was excited but also anxious about clicking the email. He sat at his desk just looking at this Outlook application, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, and breathing out. This appeared to go on for about two to three minutes, his heart pumping. Sweat started to drip down the side of his perfectly gelled hair. Sitting at his desk with his infamous sunglasses on, despite the fact that his desk was in a dimly lit portion of the precinct, he sat there a moment longer and said under his breath, Let's do this. He double-clicked the email. It popped open, and he read the email message from Coroner Madrid under his breath. The email said, Dear Detective Garcia, As promised, my team and I worked through the night and early this morning to provide you with a preliminary autopsy diagnosis here and after referred to as PAD for the four decedents. When we discussed case 2019-004, you surmised and our PAD confirms the four decedents' deaths are classified as a homicide. The PAD confirms with 98.9% certainty that each decedent perished at the hands of another individual or individuals other than the four decedents. In other words, their killer or killers are still at large. Attached to this email, you will find four individual PDFs named after each decedent where you will find more detailed information concerning the PAD for each individual. Within the next 7 to 10 days, a final autopsy diagnosis, here and after referred to as FAD, will be available for each decedent. Unless some unexpected complications result from the outstanding autopsy test, the PAD findings are not expected to change. Once completed, you will receive an email with a link to each FAD, which will contain an expanded PAD and overall autopsy summary for each decedent. <laughs> 
As always, if there are any findings that you are unclear on or if any questions you may have, please feel free to reach out to myself or any of my assistants. Sincerely, Jesus Madrid, the coroner. Detective Garcia finished reading the body of the email and moved his mouse so that it hovered over Gerardo Ramirez's PDF. He double-clicked the document. And because his computer was slower than molasses, it took about one minute before the contents of the attachment opened up for him to see. He did the same thing for the other three PDFs. After the computer completed its thinking and actually complied with Detective Garcia's command of opening the documents, he began scanning each one. After finishing his review of the documents, he uncovered the following information for each victim. Eduardo Ribeiro, 66, died execution style with one bullet that exploded inside of his brain. Overall, he was a healthy individual and died upon impact. Eduardo died immediately. Martha Romero, 67, died due to the blunt trauma to the head. In essence, she was beaten to death by a heavy object with a rounded point due to the imprint on her skull. She also was stabbed in the back, but it was the beating that caused her demise. Emily Romero, 26, died due to a deep, oblique, long, incised injury at the front of her neck. In essence, she died because her throat was slit and it appeared that she was restrained prior to and during the act due to the purple marks on her left and right shoulders. A vaginal swab did not suggest that she was sexually violated. Christopher Romero, 35, appeared to be the target of the crime. His PAD showed that he had been shot eight times, stabbed 15 times, and was castrated. The PAD could not determine if it was the final shot or stabbing that caused his demise. After reading the PADs, Detective Garcia said to himself, this family had a fucked up day and even fucked up ending. He closed each of the PAD files. He hit the forward option on the email from Coroner Madrid, typed in his chief's name, and typed the following message. Here are the preliminary results. Basically, the family was tortured and the Christopher victim appeared to be the target. I'm going to pay the Romero's neighbors a visit to see if I can find out anything about the crime from them. In the meantime, can you put pressure on the ballistic folks to find out what type of gun was used? Thanks. Detective Garcia hit the send button. He locked his computer, grabbed his car keys, and started heading to his car. Now the real detective work can begin, he thought to himself. And as he closed his door, he started humming. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when I'm coming for you? Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when I'm coming for you? He pulled up to the crime scene for the second time. The crime scene tape still lingered around the perimeter of the house at the end of the cul-de-sac, but there was just less commotion this time. The news van that has once swarmed the place about 30 hours ago were gone, replaced with emptiness. The crime scene analysts that were flashing all of the photographs as if they were at New York Fashion Week were gone too. Instead, what remained were the often unknown and unrecognized folks responsible for cleaning the blood, the bodily fluids, and other potential infectious materials from the scene. These materials are also referred to as biohazard remediation and forensic cleanup. 
these folks will essentially get the place to look as if no crime had occurred or at least to try to look as normal as possible. Flanked on either side of the Romero's home were essentially identical looking homes except for the color, the outside decorations, and the gardens. But it was obvious that the builders of the cul-de-sac homes wanted there to be solidarity between all those that stood there. Detective Garcia walked to the home to the left of the Romero's home and passed a mailbox that read the Ruiz family. He walked to the front porch, knocked on a door, and waited. Shortly thereafter, a burly, tall male opened the door. Good afternoon, sir. I'm Detective Garcia. I was wondering if I can ask you a few questions about your neighbors next door. Sure. They're dead. So they ain't my neighbors no more, I guess, huh? I'm John Ruiz. Come on in, Detective, he said as he stuck out his hand towards Detective Garcia. Detective Garcia shook his hand and said, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I shouldn't be too long. He followed Mr. Ruiz into his kitchen. The home was nice, more of a bachelor feel. Or at least maybe he or a girlfriend, but someone who didn't really care about decor lived there. They sat at the kitchen table for about 35 minutes discussing the Romero's. Detective Garcia questioned Mr. Ruiz about what he knew about the Romero's. Whether or not he saw or knew of any suspicious activity occurring at the household if he knew whether or not there were any enemies out to get the Romero's. Detective Garcia questioned him about his relationship personally with the Romero's. At the conclusion of the 35-minute session, Detective Garcia learned the following information. The Romero's were quiet, caring people. They cared about the community. They hung Halloween decorations throughout the neighborhood so that all the kids felt that they can be kids no matter their circumstances. They went to the neighborhood church almost every Sunday. They stayed to themselves for the most part. The daughter stayed with them on a regular basis, and the son was visiting for a few weeks because he needed to get some things in order in his personal life. Mr. Ruiz was at work the night and morning of the crime as he worked as a contractor, and the position or the job that he was working on this particular time actually was overnight. Mr. Ruiz contacted his foreman and requested that they submit to Detective Garcia his timesheets, as well as his check-in documents. He lives by himself. He does not know anyone that would want to harm the Romero's, nor did he see anything out of the ordinary the day of or after the crime. Mr. Ruiz did not believe that the eldest boy was running away from any issues, but instead came home to regroup. Detective Romero believed Mr. Ruiz, and for now had no reason to go any further with investigating him as a potential suspect. Detective Garcia walked to the home to the right of the Romero's home. Like the Ruiz's home, their mailbox announced the occupant's name, the Carsons. Detective Garcia walked to the door, knocked on it, and was greeted by a skinny, tall blonde who had to be in her 50s. He did the same announcement he did for Mr. Ruiz. He also was invited into the Carsons' home. Miss Carson lived at home with her husband. She was a part-time worker at the Whole Foods. She was actually out of town visiting her sick mother in Texas during the time of the murder and was able to provide Detective Garcia with her travel itinerary. Her husband was a superintendent for a construction company. He was at work during the time of the murders, at least that's what his schedule said. Detective Garcia was able to obtain the company's contact information and planned to verify this a little later. During this conversation with Ms. Carson, Detective Garcia found out that prior to her leaving for Texas, she hired a 
gardener, a Hispanic male by the name of Carlos, who she picked up at the local pickup spot. That's a location where many undocumented individuals wait during the morning time to see if they can find odd jobs here or there. Detective Garcia found out Carlos was from Nicaragua and was here to help his older sister make ends meet, or at least that's what he told Miss Carson. Detective Garcia asked Miss Carson if she would be able to identify Carlos. She said yes. He asked her if Carlos was working the last two days. She said yes. Detective Garcia also found out that Carlos had yet to return to pick up his pay for the work that he completed while she was away. Detective Garcia found that to be odd. Detective Garcia stayed at the Carson's home for about 40 minutes. He requested, and Miss Carson obliged, that she accompany him to the pickup spot to identify Carlos. They drove past the pickup spot. She pointed out Carlos. Detective Garcia took her back home and returned to the pickup spot. He approached Carlos and asked him the normal questions and questioned him about his whereabouts over the last two days. Without being asked, Carlos advised that he was working a job at a home pruning the garden, taking out the weeds, planting some flowers in the flower beds, things of that nature, odd jobs here and there. But that he had ran from the area after a lady came out of the neighbor's house screaming. He said that he panicked and left the job and has not returned since. Detective Garcia asked if he knew the Romeros. Carlos denied knowing them. Detective Garcia asked that he attempt to help the woman who was screaming. Carlos said no. He was too confused and scared and he just left. Within the hour, Carlos found himself not at the pickup spot, but instead sitting in the Albuquerque jail holding cell, charged with killing four individuals. He was confused. He didn't understand why he was there. He didn't understand who he should call. He didn't understand what he could do. He didn't understand what his rights were. After all, he was an undocumented individual from Nicaragua only here trying to help his sister make ends meet. All right, my friends out there in podcast Lania, it is time for the short to end. So until we meet again, remember here at Shorts by Peeps Creek, we tell original stories dedicated to crime, love, triumph, and adversity. Don't forget to listen, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast directory, and be sure to tell a friend. Send tips, feedback, or other ideas about how the next chapter in this short should unfold by sliding into my DMs on Instagram at Heart, or you can also leave a message or text message at 202-618-0043 or visit the website at Peeps Creek, that is P-E-E-P-S-C-R-E-E-K.com. The theme music for the podcast is created by my brother Crazy Drake out of Detroit, Michigan for Blazing Heat Music. We will not have an episode next week, but instead we will see you in two weeks. Until next time here at Peeps Creek Cafe, we will continue to listen, drink, create, and converse. Peace and love. <laughs>